It's Tuesday, July 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. One of the bright spots that helped many restaurants and businesses make it through the pandemic was the ability to extend out on the sidewalks and streets. It helped them continue to do business while indoor activities were restricted, and in many areas, these changes are being made permanent. But for disabled citizens, these changes can make sidewalks feel like obstacle courses. Calls are now being made for many equality impact assessments, which notify business owners of reasonable adjustments that can be made to provide better accessibility. John Sirico, contributor to Bloomberg City Lab, joins us for how open streets impacted disabled users. Next, the demand for mental health care has overwhelmed supply for most of the pandemic. And in some places like Massachusetts, the need for those services is critical. If traditional hospitals and treatment centers don't have available space for mental health services, some may need to go to the ER in what is known as emergency room boarding for psychiatric patients. These types of stays have risen between 200 and 400% in Massachusetts during the pandemic, and ERs are not equipped for this type of treatment. Martha Biebinger, healthcare reporter at WBUR, joins us for what to know and one girl's 17-day stay in an ER. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You know, you see all these sorts of problems arising from these issues, and they really just, you know, were calling for kind of a seat at the table and hoping that, you know, if we were to make these structures permanent, which, as you mentioned, a lot of them are going to be permanent, that the the temporary problems don't become permanent. I think that's important there, that kind of piece. Joining us now is John Sirico, contributor to Bloomberg City Lab. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks so much for having me. One of the things that happened throughout the pandemic in a lifeline, really, for a lot of restaurants is that cities allowed them to spill out into the sidewalks and even in the streets. This happened. It was a response to closing down of indoor dining. So they said, hey, you can move out into these other spaces. We'll let you do that. In a lot of cases, now that we are kind of reopening from uh, after the pandemic and all that, a lot of cities and states are making some of those changes permanent, allowing those, you know, those restaurants to keep those spaces outside. A lot of them invested money in uh, making these little outdoor dining areas. But one of the things, and I enjoyed them very much myself, I, I, I kind of applauded that they were able to extend those. But one of the things that, that we're seeing now is that for our uh, disabled Americans, this is uh, actually posing a problem for those on wheelchairs and others with uh, mobility impairments. It's uh, it's hard to navigate those areas. And, and reading through your piece, I started thinking even of myself on a busy streetway right there, it is kind of difficult to navigate even for, for a normal person just to walk around. You have to make a left and a right and all this stuff. It can get pretty complicated. So John, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with this. Sure. So, you know, this story kind of came about where, you know, I've been reporting on streets and accessibility for a couple of years now, whether it's in public transit or on streets themselves. And, you know, I heard from advocates who I'd spoken to in the past who said, you know, these new parklet, you know, outdoor COVID era parklets, outdoor dining, you know, we're seeing them used for uh, retail now, we're seeing them used for all sorts of different uses that they came back out onto the streets because many disabled Americans were, were shielding during COVID due to underlying vulnerabilities. And when they came out to the streets, they found that they were completely reconfigured for this outdoor dining and they they couldn't get by, right? There's there's cluttered sidewalks, there's tables and you know chairs kind of going out into the public right of way. There's outdoor dining structures that you know are inaccessible because the tables are too tight or there's not a ramp to get over the curb. 
you know, you see all these sorts of problems arising from these issues. And they really just, you know, were calling for kind of a seat at the table and, and hoping that, you know, if we were to make these structures permanent, which, as you mentioned, a lot of them are going to be permanent, that the, the temporary problems don't become permanent. I think that's important there, that kind of piece. You mentioned in the article that you grew up with a disabled parent. And there's this kind of a ritual that a lot of people go through, actually, uh, when they're deciding, hey, we're actually going to go out. We're going to go somewhere. Uh, you got to call ahead, see if there's a ramp. You got to kind of uh, see if all, all the ducks are in a row to see if the accessibility is there. And, and you spoke to, you know, as as I mentioned, you went through it. You spoke to a lot of people just to get out for a normal course of business. You have to kind of take all these steps. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's really, you know, such a key part of understanding, you know, when you start to really see how cities are shaped for the abled user, right? And I think this is where this concept of the normative user comes up, which I mentioned in the piece where unless you kind of have this experience like I had with a disabled mother, you know, or you have a friend who's disabled or you find yourself temporarily disabled because you, you know, broke your leg or something like that. It's hard to, to kind of realize how inaccessible our streets really are and how this could affect other users. You know, for me growing up where we had to make those calls to restaurants and, you know, like I said in the piece where, you know, the, the list is pretty short for restaurants that can qualify often. But I think with these outdoor dining structures, there's they pose both uh, opportunities and pitfalls. And the opportunities being that you can actually add a lot of new space uh, by going into parking spots. You can actually take some seats off the sidewalk and put them into these kind of designated places. You know, the pitfalls being what I mentioned before, where you have new tripping hazards, cluttered sidewalks, uh, inaccessible new spaces, uh, you know, so they could they could help businesses, but they could also create a whole new set of problems. And I think that's where accessibility advocates wanted to make that very clear. Uh, you met with one of those advocates and organizers. If you could describe to me that kind of the walk you took throughout the streets, uh, you mentioned towards the end of it, she was panting after having to navigate all of the ops, basically like an obstacle course trying to get through the street. Yeah, so when I when I met with Iman, who's really such a great source on these on these topics, you know, she pointed out a restaurant that in Midtown Manhattan where you know they had both the outdoor dining structure and the parking spot, but also were adding seats to the sidewalk. And you know, she made a point that you know in COVID, kind of all the public realm became this kind of free game, um, and that's something that you know these kind of temporary problems it kind of became you know kind of this pro forma policy in a way. So, you know, we were talking about that. And as we kept going along, you saw all these kind of igloos taking up the public sidewalk, these kind of little cottages that were built. Some of them weren't in the parking spots. They were actually on the sidewalk. And for someone like me who has two two able legs and can get through those kind of tight spaces and can maneuver, it's a bit different for someone, for a wheelchair user like Iman or someone using a walker where they can't, it's really hard to get a wheelchair through those tight spaces. They can't go onto the street just as easily as an able-bodied person can and just kind of get around these spaces. So by the time we walked about two or three blocks, yeah, it was quite exhausting for her. And it was something that was so eye-opening to see how, you know, just how cluttered the sidewalks have gotten during this phase. Uh, you know, even though she'll admit she's a, she's a fan of them, she just wants them to be to be better, improved. And so what are the next steps for this? Uh, obviously, raising awareness is one. Uh, I think there was recommendations maybe to say if you're going to open these, uh, open the streets and the sidewalks of this, you know, make sure, uh, you know, you have a little, uh, like a mini report or something so that you know that yeah. uh, there's accessibility requirements or rank structures based on their accessibility, just, just to make sure that we're, we're looking out for, uh, for our, these disabled citizens as well. 
Yeah, so I would say there was three main kind of takeaways and solutions that came from the piece. Uh, and I think a lot of this has to do that we're now entering the second kind of iteration of them. You know, you mentioned you're a fan. I'm a fan. I eat in outdoor dining structures all the time. Now we got to figure out how we're going to make these permanent and they are going to exist on the street. So we are in this kind of we're beyond the pilot phase. Right. Right. And I would say the three solutions that kind of came up, the first being uh, what Iman told me, which is we need to reanalyze the streets. If we're on a really busy corridor, you know, maybe we should start thinking about expanding the sidewalk. If we're going to add all these new things to the streetscape and a future city street, you know, does include outdoor dining, which I think it should. Can we start to rethink the sidewalk and the space that we're giving to residents? Maybe we should expand a bit. So that's the first one. The second, I would say, is just education, education, education. I mean, you know. Again, it shouldn't take myself who had a disabled mom to just know about these things or think about them. We really need to get the public to have a change of behavior, as Susan Duha mentioned to me in the in the piece, where we educate the masses. So when they do act, when restaurant owners do put this space out, they do feel that it's wrong. It's not it's incorrect. And also are aware of the huge economic loss, which was a key point to me that, you know, in the UK, they call it the purple pound. You know, these millions of dollars that are lost by businesses when a disabled user decides to go somewhere else and not shop at your business because you decided to, or you were unable to provide accessibility. I think that's the best way of putting it. So education, every step of the way, every time the city talks to a business owner, educating them, here's the proper way to do it. Here's the potential business you could lose, you know, really having that education piece. And I would say the last one is just including accessibility advocates, which to me is the kind of most simple, the, the simplest one, right? right exactly. You know, when you're doing these permits, have accessibility advocates there looking them over, making sure they do work for everyone and hiring more accessibility officers in you know departments of transportation who are mostly in most cities. They're the departments that are taking care of this. Uh, and and also and I thought this was a great idea, you know, sending those with disabilities out to these outdoor dining structures kind of as like a side evaluation, not to penalize businesses. I think so key you know, that uh, Alan Benson and some other advocates told me where they're not looking to penalize businesses and giving them another fine. It's how can we work? How can we work together collaboratively? If we decide these are going to be permanent, how can we make them really work for everyone? I think a key part of that is just having these accessibility advocates at the table to really decide and really see that vision through. So that's, I think, going forward what cities will really have to look forward to in the coming months. John Sirico, contributor to Bloomberg City Lab. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. What happened was she got there and all of the psych beds for kids in Massachusetts and surrounding states were full because we're seeing a lot of increasing uh, demand for mental health care and, and really extreme cases where, where children are threatening to harm themselves. Joining us now is Martha Biebinger healthcare reporter at WBUR. Thanks for joining us, Martha. Thank you for having me. I'm going to talk about an interesting piece you wrote uh, about kids uh, with mental health crises. Right now, a lot of times uh, hospitals are overrun. They don't have enough space. And sometimes these kids have to go into ERs. And in some cases, they can be there quite quite a long time. You profiled a girl named Melinda who had to spend 70, 17 days in an ER, just really not the right setting for what she was going through. But because of uh, issues, other places where she couldn't be placed, you know, she had to kind of tough it out through there. So, uh, Martha, tell us a little bit about her ordeal and, and, and the overall problem with, uh, you know, staying in the ERs, but ER boarding, as they call it. Right. 
So Melinda has um, anxiety and depression that really got worse during the pandemic as she grew more and more isolated. You know, her, her singing lessons stopped. She was going to school virtually. She was seeing therapists, but that all switched to virtual sessions as well. And she just wasn't connecting. So uh, she had four trips to the ER starting last December in instances where she threatened to kill herself. And the one where she ended up spending 17 days in the ER started in April. What happened was she got there and all of the psych beds for kids in Massachusetts and surrounding states were full because we're seeing a lot of increasing uh, demand for mental health care and, and really extreme cases where, where children are threatening to harm themselves. And so all of the units are full. And in addition, during COVID, many of the psych beds had been converted to, to COVID where they needed them, or they had been switched from double rooms to single. So there was a, there was kind of a shrinking of, of space that for, to take care of these kids with psychiatric needs and more demand. And Melinda ended up kind of caught in that bottleneck, waiting 17 days to be placed in the bed. You know, and a lot of time there's a, individual, a lot of individual care that these uh, patients need. And Melinda wasn't getting that. And for her first 10 days in the hospital was kind of, uh, I guess you describe it, this lecture hall with a dozen other kids on gurneys is just separated by curtains and whatnot. Uh, and it's just tough to get kind of get the treatment that you need. By the time you caught up with her, she was already in there for 12 days in the ER. Tell me how that went. Well, she wasn't getting any care in the ER, but that's not unusual. Emergency rooms they're kind of the place where you just assess the problem and then move on. So, you know, if you break your arm, they, they might fix that in the emergency room. If you have a heart attack, they're very likely going to move you up to someplace in the hospital where you can get care for that. But if you have psychiatric need and there's no space, you just sit there because emergency rooms aren't set up to provide any therapy, any psychiatric analysis, anything like that. And so Melinda just started to spiral downward. You know, she she eventually got moved out of that lecture hall into a small room off of the emergency room. But again, like she was she she was sitting on a gurney, no furniture in the room, wasn't allowed to have her phone except for maybe an hour a day. Um, she she wasn't getting any treatment. So she just got worse and worse, which <laughs> meant that she had some behavior problems. She was screaming at staff. Sometimes she's threatened to escape one time, and that it made her harder to place. So it turned right. into this kind of catch-22 because the hospitals didn't want this girl who was acting out, but she was acting out because she had been stuck in this space. You were also able to make contact with her mother, Pam. And, you know, as the days were progressing, you know, she said the longer that her daughter Melinda is there, the more she's starting to decline. And, and basically what you were just describing, she was lashing out uh, yeah. And, and and that just complicates everything from then on out. Yeah. I mean, Pam, Pam could see that um, other children who were more docile than her daughter were getting placed more quickly. Um, people who didn't complain seemed to be getting placed more quickly. But the and the hospital administrators will tell you, look, we have to sort of assess who's coming in to be sure they're going to be a good fit for a program. We don't want to take in somebody who we think is going to kind of disrupt the care that we're trying to provide for other people in the unit. But it, it becomes a very difficult situation for for mental health patients who aren't, you know, quote unquote, well behaved. 
Melinda and Pam were both doing uh, like audio diaries. So we were able to kind of hear from Melinda in her own words what was going on. And she said that she wished in a lot of cases that someone would just understand her. Uh, she really couldn't get across to anybody how bad things were for her. Yeah, no, she's she's had a, a very hard time um, what, during the pandemic, especially finding people who she felt she could um, explain the stresses that that she was under and get some help. I mean, I think she also describes that she just had way too much unstructured time to kind of ruminate in her head, you know, to sort of get stuck in these loops of of negative thinking that um, really were not healthy, were not helping her or or anybody else. And and that's unfortunately something that we're hearing from from a lot of kids who have been stuck at home during the pandemic. You know, we're talking about Melinda and her and her struggle here and her mother, Pam. You know, obviously, this is just one example of it. But this emergency room boarding of psychiatric patients, uh, they say, have has risen between 200 and 400 percent uh, monthly in Massachusetts during the pandemic. So this is just kind of a snapshot of what's happening. But this is happening in a lot of places to a lot of people uh, following along with the story. You know, it wasn't until day 17 that Melinda was in all of this that she was finally going to be taken away and placed into another program where she would be able to stay for two weeks. They adjusted her medication and she started to see a little bit of change finally. Yeah. Melinda has been not completely stable um, since she's been home, um, but she's definitely doing better. I mean, the, some of her therapy is, is back in person. Um, it's possible that the, the medication adjustments made at the hospital helped. She's had some, she's got some additional therapy. She's got a therapeutic mentor now. So somebody who who kind of walks through the world with her a little bit, helping her avoid the trigger points that, that used to kind of send her into these downward spirals. So she's got some additional assistance and, um, the family's very hopeful that, that the, that the summer will, will go well for her. Is the hope that now that the pandemic is easing in some cases that, this would get better and these ER boarding stays uh, the, uh, won't, uh, won't last as long anymore and the, the other hospital beds can open up. Is that the hope now or is there other stuff being done to, to limit this kind of thing? Well, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about that because the numbers of kids boarding in Massachusetts have not started to drop yet, even though, as you said, the pandemic conditions are easing. So it's possible that we have a backlog of these mental health cases that um, need to be addressed. Honestly, people don't really know what to expect in the next few months. There are some efforts to try to take care of kids uh, more at home, to try to offer some urgent care in the community, um, to open up some psych beds that are not actually in hospitals, but in more like halfway houses. There are some things underway to try to reduce the numbers, but it's still pretty tough in Massachusetts and in many states right now. Martha Biebinger, healthcare reporter at WBUR. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.